Thank you very much, Steve, for that kind introduction and also explaining that this is not my day job. And, there, and I, this is a health warning. I am not a historian, all right? <laughs> but um, what I want to do today is tell you a little bit, first of all, about the firm of um, Howard Grubb in Dublin, and, and then tie that in with the measurements that were made in 1919, and you'll see uh, some of the equipment from uh, Grubb's time that, that proved to be very important for these particular measurements. So I need to set the whole thing in context, and that's it, that's okay. So uh, around the 1840s, 1850s in Ireland was a sort of golden era in astronomy. Uh, what probably a lot of people don't realize is that actually Ireland, up to about the 1870s or so, had not only the largest reflecting telescope in the world, that was the um, six-foot um, so-called Leviathan of Parsonstown, that was the, the biggest reflector in the world, but it also had the largest refractor in the world in a place called Markree Castle in Sligo. Now, of course, Ireland is not the best place when it comes to optical observing. Neither is Oxford, but, you know, this was pre-jetting um, off to La Palma or Hawaii, etc., so it's understandable that they had, to, they had to base them at home, so to speak. So um, this golden era of astronomy in Ireland then gave rise to um, an actual industry building telescopes. And this man here, Thomas Grubb, was the first, uh, was the founder of the firm. Um, he initially started off, believe it or not, his business was making um, billiard tables. And at that time, by the way, the billiard tables weren't slate billiard tables, they were actually metal that were um, fashioned into as flat as, uh, 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 a tabletop as possible. But he started in that, but he had an in interest in scientific instrumentation. And so he started building telescopes and uh, microscopes, etc. But um, although he, he made telescopes, for example, for the US uh, Naval Observatory, a number of tele small telescopes around Europe, um, he realized that telescope making was not a very steady business. Right? You would get an order for a large telescope, the firm would be going for a few months working on that, and then there mightn't be an order for quite some time. So he decided to go into another business, which was actually making money, or more precisely, printing money. Um, he got the post um, in the Bank of uh, the Bank of Ireland produced its own notes, rather like the Bank of England does at that time, and he got the post um, with the recommendation of William Rowan Hamilton, the noted mathematician. Now, I'm not sure you know that uh, a, a letter of reference from a mathematician today would get you a, a job in the Bank of England, for example, but maybe, maybe. But anyway, so that's how he, he got the job, and he essentially passed on the business to his son, Hard Grub. And um, Hard um, started actually uh, doing a degree um, in Trinity College, but he actually never finished it. But um, he became um, very, very well known in instrument making circles, and he made um, telescopes, and I'll just show you a few examples in the next few minutes. For, uh, for
for institutions all around the world, including um, uh, Vienna, um, for Melbourne, etc. As I said, I'll show you some examples. But he also was involved with some telescopes in the States. For example, if any of you ever go to the Lick Observatory, um, you'll see there's a rising floor in the Lick Observatory, which was the solution for the problem of when you make a bigger and bigger refractor, of course, and if you're looking at something which is low down on the horizon, or even at 30 degrees or whatever, then it gets very difficult for the observer to look through the eyepiece. So he came up with the idea of the rising floor, so a hydraulically uh, moving floor. And um, he also, later in life, he was the person who developed um, the marine periscope. So it, it's difficult to kind of realize it now. The inventor, by the way, of the modern submarine was a guy called Holland, John Holland, um, who was also from around County Clare. But he, uh, Holland tried to get the, uh, the British Admiralty interested in submarines, and they weren't particularly interested. So he actually ended up over in the US, where his first source of funding was the Fenian Brotherhood. Now, I can imagine what, what they intended to do with the first submarine, but uh, they actually ran out of money, and he eventually sold the idea to the US uh, Navy, who started building submarines, and at which point British Admiralty got interested. But the first submarines actually went around blind. They had no periscope. They simply just went underwater, went a certain distance, hoped for the best in a particular direction. Um, but then Grubb invented the periscope, in particular for a submarine, and that was extremely challenging uh, business at the time to do that. Anyway, at one point in his, uh, his firm, which is in a place called Rat Mines in Dublin, um, the, it had 400 people working on um, optics. Here's an actual picture of his firm in Rat Mines. Uh, this is with the opening of the new building. And uh, you note the clear um, health and safety um, <laughs> cognizance, right? Yes. Um, here's one of his famous telescopes. It's the Great Melbourne Telescope. So Melbourne, after the gold rush, um, had a lot of money. This is back in sort of 1847-48. And um, they decided they were going to, they, the local government decided on a prestige project, which was to build the largest telescope in the southern hemisphere. Uh, they had virtually no astronomers, by the way, but they decided to build the telescope anyway. So um, Howard Grubb was commissioned with making the telescope, and uh, that was actually the last one major telescope using speculum mirror, so you, not using glass mirror. After that, people started using glass and pyrex, etc. Um, but that telescope, actually, there have been a number of reincarnations of that telescope, and it, it was used up to about, um, I think, about 15 years ago um, for the MACHO project, you know, for searching for massive... Um, objects in the halo of our galaxy which are causing gravitational deflection or gravitational lensing.
So, uh, and then, of course, there was the fire at Mount Stromlo, and that telescope was destroyed. But, in fact, um, the Museum of Victoria is now in the process of restoring it. Here's another one of uh, his telescopes. This is the, uh, the largest refractor uh, on mainland, uh, well, in, in Europe, in Vienna, and this was built also by Howard Grubb. And um, he built sort of half of the telescopes for the Carte Seal. The Carte Seal was, in effect, the first survey. I mean, we were talking about surveys last night, astronomical surveys. And so this, the Carte Seal, from around the 1890s, and uh, it ran for quite a number of years, was actually the first survey of the sky. Obviously, it was uh, a photographic survey, and it involved a number of um, universities and observatories around the world, including the Vatican Observatory. So that's why over here you see a group of nuns. So back in 1895 and 1900, they were actually doing the measurements on, on plates. Now, take that into consideration <laughs> during your next uh, survey. And this telescope which maybe some of you might know, because it was in Oxford at one point, the Radcliffe Telescope. So Grubb constructed that. It ended up, of course, in uh, Pretoria. But um, it was initially in Oxford, and this was constructed by Hart Grubb. Anyway, so let's start with the... That's to give you some background about Hart Grubb himself. But he was very... Uh, not only an instrument maker, but he was very interested in astronomy itself. And um, back in 1900, he organized um, an expedition to Spain to observe an eclipse there. And this was um, uh, an expedition that involved the Royal Irish Academy and the Royal uh, Dublin Society. So they, they, they duly headed off to Spain. Initially, it was thought an enormous number of people were going to go, but then just around that period, there was problems with the Boer War, etc., and the net result of that was not so many people wanted to travel. Um, so, anyway, they headed off to Spain. As you can see here, maybe I have a... I don't have a pointer. Oh, there is one. I have one just here. Sorry. I've got one. Steve, yeah? No problem, sorry. I should have taken this out right at the beginning. Um, yeah, so that's decided to die. <laughs> this one. Oh, this one, yeah, okay. So let's see. Okay, so it works very well. All right, so here is actually the group in uh, Vicenia, uh, in, in, in Spain, um, the travel there for the 1900 eclipse. Uh, this is actually Howard Grove himself. This is a guy called Charles Jasper Jolie, who was director of Dunsink Observatory, which is actually part of my own institute now. Um, this guy, is, his name is Wilson. He did a lot of work on the sun, and some of you may have heard of Wilson. Um, he was also made the first um, temperature measurement of the sun, um, and he came from a place near Dublin. And what I thought was very interesting about this picture is that clearly Wilson, W.E. Wilson, taught, you know, he was going off to Spain 
and uh, he would require a pit helmet, right? The deepest, darkest Spain, you see. Whereas this is Rupert, uh, this is Rupert Grubb, the son of um, Howard Grubb, and he has the more the modern idea of what going to Spain involves with the, with the, the sort of straw hat, etc. So you can see the cultural transition was occurring then. So here you see them uh, setting up the equipment for the 1900 eclipse. You can see Wilson there in the background. And, uh, but this is the particular instrument that I want to draw your attention to. So uh, this is Jolie with the 20-foot um, photographic camera. So here you see where the photographic plate would have gone. And you can just about see it peering over the edge here. There was a coelostat, which of course just takes the light from the sun. Um, it turns as the sun moves, essentially, or at half of the rate because of the law of, uh, law of reflection. And so it then sends the light into this stationary tube, which has a lens at the front, and the image is produced back here. So, of course, what they were trying to do was image the uh, corona of the sun, and uh, which they duly did. It was extremely very good conditions. And this is actually an image from the 1900 uh, eclipse, which is actually in the Royal Irish Academy. It used this four-inch lens, which was a 20-foot focal length. And you can see here a number of prominences coming out of the sun. Now, this picture, by the way, several people have asked me, wow, I didn't realize they had color photography in 1900. They didn't. These, this was colored afterwards, right? So uh, just in case you're wondering about that. But nevertheless, I think for 1900, you can see there was, you know, it was very good quality. Actually, what I did at one point, I mean, as I said, this, uh, the, this particular eclipse, well, eclipses are normally visible over a very long track. And in this case, it was visible all the way um, from the US um, through uh, places like um, Georgia, South Georgia, North Carolina, to Spain, uh, well, Portugal, Spain, etc. So there are quite a few records of this eclipse. And here you see um, little sort of prominences here. They're the same, more or less the same ones there in Spain. This is a couple of hours difference because it took time for the, uh, for the solar, for the, for the track of the eclipse to move across the Atlantic from the US over to Europe. But you can see here that the, this is actually from the Smithsonian um, archive. They had a, um, a, um, a station at North Carolina and a guy called Thomas Smiley who was the um, photographer for the Smithsonian actually recorded what's probably the first photographically recorded CMA. Right? Because you can see suddenly this, you know, the foot points here have developed into a, a major prominence here which has been ejected into the corona. So um, we then kind of um, fast forward a number of years. And as you know, and as Steve has already mentioned, towards the end of 1915, um, Einstein came up with this prediction that, uh, for the deflection of starlight um, when an eclipse occurs. And he predicted, basically, that, as you can see from here, the light of, the, of a star, which of course uh, passes close to the sun, is bent, is altered 
in such a fashion as you can see, I think, from this diagram, the stars appear to move away from the sun itself compared to their normal position, so in the absence of the sun. And this is purely an effect of gravitational deflection. Um, and he predicted the maximum amount would be 1.75 arc seconds. And this scales with distance away from the sun. So that would be the value we would get for a star just at the surface of the sun, or appearing to be at the surface. And of course, if you go t twice as far away, it's only half of that value. So that was the prediction uh, in 1915. Now, testing that prediction, um, there was, a, there was a, a problem in trying to test the prediction, which is, of course, the First World War. And so it wasn't feasible to mount an eclipse expedition. So, um, but back in um, 1917, then, uh, there was a, this is a great title, so the Royal Astronomical Society and the Royal Society came together to uh, form what was called the Joint Permanent Eclipse Committee. Now, I still don't understand that title. No eclipse is permanent, and hopefully no committee is permanent, <laughs> so, although I have my doubts in some cases. But um, anyway, they came together, they came up with this idea of um, an expedition, but they had a basic problem. And the basic problem was this, that most of the royal societies instrumentation and Royal Astronomical Society's instrumentation had been sent off to an eclipse in Russia in 1914. And then what happened was, of course, the First World War broke out. Um, so they didn't get the equipment back. The astronomers got back, but the equipment was held up. Uh, of course, at the end of the war, then you had the Bolshevik Revolution, and they still didn't get their equipment back. In fact, they didn't get it back until, the ninth, I think, around 1925. So they were stuck, and they asked um, to the Royal Irish Academy if they could assist by giving them some equipment from uh, that the Royal Irish Academy had used for previous eclipses. So there was actually a particular priest whose name was uh, Corty. He was at Stonyhurst, which has been... Uh, Northern England, a school there. But he had associations with the Royal Irish Academy and realized the potential of the equipment that had already been there. So they asked the Royal Irish Academy for this equipment, and that was duly, of course, a loan to them. So the idea behind the eclipse expeditions was that there were actually two expeditions because chances were that maybe one of the sites, you know, might be cloudy. So the two sites that were chosen were uh, Prinkep off uh, the uh, west coast of Africa, but also a place called Sobral in Brazil. So those were the two sites, and there in that diagram you can actually see the track of the eclipse itself. And it was regarded as an extremely favorable eclipse for measuring the deflection of starlight. Why? Because the sun was actually in a cluster, the Hyades cluster. As you can see up here, we have, um, use this one. You have, this is the um, Taurus de Bull, this is Aldebaran, this is the V here, and, and this is the Hyades, all, all these stars here and up here are the Hyades cluster. So there was a lot of stars, the sun was in a sort of perfect position because you could use a lot of these stars um, for reference purposes. 
And in particular, what I just want to point out um, is this star Capital, which was the, the it's, it's a double. Um, it's a real double, it's not just an optical double. And Capital was, you know, essentially the nearest star to the sun, or the nearest double star. So the idea was to use this and other stars in the Hyades to make uh, measurements of the gravitational deflection of starlight. Normally the sun isn't in such a, such a good position from the point of view of getting bright stars. So the eclipse, um, the eclipse parties went out. They had two sets of instrumentation, by the way. It inv actually involved Oxford as well. It was a 13-inch Grubb lens. Uh, fed by a 16-inch coelostat from Oxford, and that was the actual instrument used in pre-KEP. And in Sobral, they used something very, very similar, a 13-inch Grubb lens as well, fed by a 16-inch coelostat um, from Greenwich. And in addition, um, the 4-inch lens that I mentioned earlier on from the 1900 eclipse and an 8-inch coelostat. So that... Uh, but. The latter were essentially just the backup instrumentation. So this is the instrumentation they got from the Royal Arch Academy. The intention really was to make the, shall we say, the serious measurements using uh, the 13-inch lenses and the 16-inch seal stars. And this particular uh, man, Andrew Cromellan, was the leader of the expedition to Sobral. He was from um, County, County Antrim. So he actually led the expedition out to Sobral, and then Arthur Eddington led the one to uh, Prinquet. So uh, that was fine. They actually went, took them about a month. By the way, if you ever get a chance, do read one, you know, these uh, uh, papers about the eclipse expeditions of the past. Um, they read more like travelogues. They described the boats that they got, the, uh, the, how, you know, the local natives, not necessarily in wonderful tones sometimes, by the way, um, but it, it is really worth reading just to see how, how things have changed. So this is actually the Sobral Eclipse equipment, and in fact, the equipment over here, this is the 16-inch uh, the Coelosat, and this is the 13-inch Grub lens. But this is the backup equipment. This is the 4-inch lens and the 8-inch coelostat. So just in case anything went wrong, and of course it did. Right? So that was Brazil. And the results from this were Prinquet. They got a few images, but unfortunately it was cloudy, and so they didn't get an awful lot. Uh, Sobral, the large coelostat, suffered from solar heating because the sun was, had been shining for a couple of days. So that was the downside of the beautiful weather that they had in Brazil. And as a result of that, the 16-inch uh, stat um, produced distorted images. But the 4-inch lens and the 8-inch coelostat actually produced the best results of the law. And in, in effect, were the results chosen by Eddington in the end as the definitive answers, right? And what they found was the deflection for the limb of the sun, because obviously they had to extrapolate it through, you know, using the one overall law of 1.98 plus or minus 0.18 arc seconds. And in fact, 
these plates were remeasured in 1979 by, by Harvey, and he got 1.9 plus or minus 0.11. So pretty much the same result, confirming that Eddington and Dyson had done their had done the proper job. And of course, that's with more modern instrumentation at the time. And um, this is actually. I literally did not have this up until about two days ago. Right, there's a, there's a problem, which was that the 1919 eclipse plates from the Royal Grange Observatory went missing. All of them. Right? And this is actually from uh, the Landesternwar, the State Observatory in Heidelberg. Um, Max Wolf was the director then at the time, and he was sent by Eddington a copy of one of the Prinkett images. Right? So if you go on the web and look for the 1919 eclipse and look for images of the eclipse, they're pretty lousy. And the reason is they're just scans from old books of the time. There are no proper scanned 1919 plates. Right? So we did come across this one, but in turn now recently, it turns out that um, the uh, the Greenwich Observatory, well, the, the Royal Greenwich Observatory at, well, the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, right, which is now run by the Maritime Institute, apparently they held on to three plates, which hopefully now we'll be able to get in the next few weeks and get them scanned as well. But otherwise, the, the, the Royal Greenwich Observatory, the main set of Royal Greenwich Observatory plates, should now be in the Bodleian Library, but they're not. They're missing. And this is known by STFC that they're missing. But anyway, this is just to show you one of the Prinkett plates. And these very faint stars here, very difficult to make measurements on. This is Capitao, just to give you an idea of the quality of the plates from the time. And this is, of course, the name of the sun. So um, as you can see, this is Dyson's paper and Edison's paper. Um, measuring the deflection of starlight. They give the value here. I gave you the errors there on 1.94. But as you can see, in summarizing the results of the two expedition, the greatest weight must be awarded to those obtained by the four-inch lens at Sobral, and obviously the Asians see the star. So, that's, so that was actually the source of the measurements. Um, I like this bit from the newspaper at the time. I think it's really good. right? So this is, uh, they had uh, Dyson and Eddington made the announcement that Einstein was correct at the Royal Society in November uh, uh, 1919. And I like this bit. The subject was a lively topic of conversation in the House of Commons yesterday. This is Joseph Lamore uh, for Cambridge University on arriving at the lecture before the Royal Astronomical Society last evening said he had been besieged by inquiries as to whether Newton had been cast down and Cambridge done in. <laughs> so Cambridge had clearly been done in on this occasion. So of course Eddington became very famous on the front of uh, Time magazine at the time and um, spent quite a bit of time with Einstein as well. And uh, so that was fine, um, but there was a kind of rumor that this equipment had actually gone back to Ireland at some point. So I decided to follow up on this because I'd become interested in hard grub 
and uh, I was trying to, to trace where this equipment had gone. Anyway, to cut a long story short, through the archives in the Royal Society and in the Royal Astronomical Society, I basically, and the Royal Irish Academy, I basically found out that the equipment had been sent back to Ireland in 1947 at the foundation of my own institution. So the Institute, by the way, Dublin Institute for Advanced Studies, was, well, um, the first section of it, which was theoretical physics, was opened up during the Second World War. And so people like Erwin Schrodinger ended up in Ireland, right? Because the president of Ireland at the time realized there was a lot of um, scholars and uh, fleeing the Nazis, and he decided to set up the institute for them to, to come to during the war. Anyway, so I actually found then, in turn, um, the Seelostat and the 20-foot um, the lens buried, well, in one case, the instrument was buried in the basement, amongst many other items, in the observatory. There quite, quite a lot of stuff in the observatory. But in addition, the Seelostat turned out to be in the garage of an ex-technician. And it at some point, it had been sent off for him to do a bit of restoration work on it, you know. But uh, anyway, we found it. It has, the nice thing about grub equipment was that grub equipment has um, numbers on it, sort of boilerplate numbers, right? And um, fortunately, the, uh, uh, well, grub, grub, by the way, moved after the First World War. They moved to Newcastle and became Grub Parsons who, of course, built telescopes up until the, uh, up until the 70s. Uh, but Grub Parsons, when it closed then, um, they, a lot of, a lot of uh, old stuff was being dumped. And the head of the optics unit actually rescued some books from Dublin um, that, were, that were actually in a skip. And these were passed on to me because somebody had heard I was interested in Grub. It turned out one of these books actually had Grubb's numbers and where the instruments had been. So from the, the number, then, I realized this was the, um, the actual coelostat and the lens had been used and in Sobral. Apart from the fact, I mean, it was known the lens was 19 foot, 6 inches focal length, you know, etc. So it was pretty, pretty definitive. Now, um, hopefully this will work. Okay. So this is the restored Seelostat. So Madonna Observatory with the CEA in Sackley did, uh, did a job on that. University College London restored the, um, the Einstein lens, the four-inch lens. When I got this uh, video from, uh, from the CEA a couple of weeks ago, I thought the, uh, there was something wrong with my hard drive, and it turned out it was actually the noise of the, the governors and the Seelostat working for the first time in certainly 70 years. So, so that's restored. It's now back in, in Dublin, and in fact, we're uh, kind of going to unveil it um, next week because we're celebrating, as Steve said, 100 years since Einstein put forward the, um, the general theory of relativity. So just to, just to recap, it's this instrument here, which was the backup equipment, which is now being found. 
So that was great and wonderful, but then there turned out to be a kind of twist in the story, which turned out to be very interesting. Because um, I realized something about the uh, eclipses. So as of course I think that you all know, Earth goes around the sun in 365 and a quarter days, more or less. Right? This is why we have the, the leap year. And it means, for example, um, the solstice, uh, the winter solstice, summer solstice actually shifts over, over time. And then, of course, you insert a leap year, and then it brings it back. For example, my, the classic example I like, um, Steve mentioned our work, I've also done some work in archaeoastronomy, and there's a site near Ireland called Newgrange, which is actually aligned, it's a very long passage, but it was aligned with the uh, winter solstice, but the winter solstice for 5,000 years ago. I mean, the carving dating of the site is 3,200 or so BC, and it's perfectly aligned for the, for the winter solstice. And every winter solstice, you know, there's a small select party end up inside this main chamber to see the sun coming in. And I'm sort of wheeled up there on the 21st of December for this event. And, you know, there's some notable politicians are visiting dignitaries and whatever. But once every four years, it's actually on the 22nd. But I'm told to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> But then the following day, I really enjoy going up, and then there's some mem members of the public are allowed in, and I'd say, this is the real solstice. <laughs> Not yesterday, right? So you can see the um, pattern here. So basically, this is, the, this is, of course, this is just a summer solstice, but it's the same thing applies. And what you have then is this oscillation dependent upon the leap year um, effect, right? But in addition, as you also know, 365 and a quarter isn't quite right in the Julian calendar, and there's another correction dependent upon whether the first two digits of a century are divisible or not divisible by four. And so dependent upon that, you either insert in and uh, make them a leap year or not, as the case may be. So that's why this particular pattern here. Okay, so that's fine. So you get this kind of drift. But what I realized was one eclipse, the 1900s eclipse, had occurred in 28 of May, 1900. And the second eclipse, which was the one that was used in Sobral and, uh, and Prinkep, was the 29th of May, right? But one was in the morning, the other was in the afternoon. And one, you know, was out of step as regards the leap year effect. So it turns out, if you put them both into a planetarium program, for example, you'll see this. The top one is May the 28, 1900 eclipse. There's um, Capitao, right? And that was the one in Spain that uh, Grubb looked at and reported. This is Sobral eclipse, May the 29th. There's Capitao. Of course, it's upside down. Remember, Brazil is in the Southern Hemisphere, right? That's why. Otherwise, within one arc minute, the sun is in exactly the same place. It's just a coincidence. It's nothing to do, by the way, with Ceroses, et cetera. They're on different Ceros cycles. It was just pure coincidence. So what we're saying is that uh, the same equipment had been used to observe the same eclipse, right? 
essentially the same eclipse. The other advantage of the 1900 eclipse, by the way, is, of course, the sun goes through cycles, the 11-year 11 11 cycles, or more properly 22-year, but 11-year cycles in terms of um, coronal activity. And uh, 1900 was less active than 1919, so there were advantages to 1900 versus 1919. So let's just sum it up. The sun was in exactly the same position the sky within a minute or two um, of arc. Solar activity was lower in 1900 than it was uh, in 1919. The same four-inch lens in Sealsat was used to image the sun in the same part of the sky. Just coincidences. But it begs the obvious question, why didn't anybody really think of doing, um, using photography of historical data to try and measure this deflection? And there was a very good reason why people uh, were doing photography. They were looking for a planet called Vulcan. Right? So Vulcan, um, let me explain that, uh, and I think many of you know, you know the history of general relativity. There is an effect, for, for example, of the advancement of the perihelion of Mercury. And the initial explanation for this, of course, we now know, of course, it's just a general relativistic effect. But the initial explanation uh, was in terms of a possible planet that was inside the orbit of Mercury and was therefore very, very difficult to see. It had even been given a name, um, Vulcan, and people started to search for Vulcan. Right? It's kind of ironic that the plates from the searching for Vulcan, um, which was purely erroneous due to the advance of the perihelion of Mercury, turns out to be of interest in terms of measuring the deflection of starlight. So that's the reason why they looked at it. And so I then started looking at a number of plates from around the world from 1900. This is, for example, the Chabot Observatory. It's um, Oakland. It's near San Francisco. And there's, as you can see there, Capital, 1900. Almost identical position as the 1919 one. Okay. Um, but there are um, similar plates. There's another set in Lick Observatory. There's a, um, a set in the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh as well. Okay. And so they all had gone off to observe this 1900 eclipse. Um, but there was a suggestion to use um, historical plates. And the first person to suggest it was this man here on the left, Erwin Freundlich. Um, or Erwin Finley Freundlich, as he's sometimes called, because he had a, a Scottish mother and a, a German, German father. And he was a, a friend of Einstein's. And so back in around 1914, just before the war broke out, um, Einstein had predicted the deflection of um, starlight, a sort of first approximation, which we now call the sort of Newtonian approximation. It turned out, of course, to be wrong by a factor of two. But um, Freundlich had suggested using historical material to do this uh, deflection of starlight measurement. Um, now, Freundlich had a couple of problems. One was he wasn't really a very practical observer. He was more of a theoretician. The second thing was that Shruve, who was the director 
uh, didn't believe in Einstein at all. Right. Yeah, anyway, no, no comment. And um, so basically he was not supported in this pursuit. He did try and go off to the 1914 eclipse and make measurements for that in, in Russia, not in the same site as the Royal Society and Royal Astronomical Society. And he ended up being interned, I think somewhere around Serbia on the way to the eclipse. Or so. Anyway, he got out, but uh, he, he, he wrote, in fact, to a number of observatories around the world, including Lick and the Royal Greenwich Observatory, right, to Dyson. This man here on the right, um, Curtis, tried to measure some historical plates and then there was also an eclipse in 1917 in the US and he actually did some work on that. But he was regarded as being, well, Wallace Campbell who was director of Lick thought Curtis was a bit sloppy. By the way, Curtis, some of you may have heard of the M87 jet. So he was the guy who discovered the M87 jet photographically. He had no idea what it was, of course, at the time in the AGN connection, but he actually discovered the jet from M87. So, and then the other complication then was that um, the US entered a war around that time and Curtis decided to go off with the, uh, with the US military. So, um, his work wasn't really completed and it wasn't done very, very well. Now, Dyson, um, as I said, Freundlich suggested to Dyson back in 1914 that he used historical material. I only know that because of letters that are in the Lick Observatory archive where Freundlich writes to Campbell and says, I've contacted you know, Dyson and suggested using historical material, but, uh, and, and that, that uh, he promised me help. Now, of course, then the war broke out and maybe things were a bit different at that point. Anyway, he never did. There's no correspondence in the RGO corresponding to this. Um, then Dyson in 1917 uh, actually starts getting actively interested in measuring GR, general relativity, deflection of starlight. And he prints in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society a two-page paper. Page one is measurements, some historical measurements that he made on some plates from Tunisia that were in the Orgio archive. Page two, and page one, by the way, he says, oh, this method will clearly work, right? You, you can see there in black and white, two pages. This method will clearly work, but unfortunately, I can only measure two stars on this plate. So obviously, that's not, no good for measuring the deflection of starlight but the astrographs will, will, will do the job. And then on page two, there is this eclipse coming up on the 29th of May, 1919. Uh, we have to mount an expedition to, uh, to, to measure um, Dr. Einstein's effect. And that's it, and he shows a sort of diagram of where the stars will be in 1919. And nothing more, just that's the two pages. So that's actually the diagram where he's made the, um, his initial measurements. But then in the process of looking into this, I realized that Dyson only had, had three sets of plates to look at, 
from the astrographs, from eclipses. He'd ones um, from, as mentioned here, from Tunisia. That's the one he actually measured, measured on this two-page paper. He had plates from uh, Sumatra, which weren't very good in 1901. And then, to my surprise, I discovered he'd been at the 1900 eclipse in Portugal. Right? So we had those sets of plates as well. And um, so he was at a place called Ovar in Portugal. That would have got the eclipse first as the eclipse crossed the Atlantic before Grubb and his party would have got it in uh, the eclipse in Spain. And here's the actually pictures of the party from the Bodleian Library, uh, which was, the, of course, then it was the Royal Grange Observatory's library, which has been moved recently to the Bodleian. So this is the party in Portugal preparing uh, for the eclipse. This man here is Christie, who was the Astronomer Royal at the time, and his next in command was Dyson. And then I looked at the Bodleian plates, and there's um, Capital. There's the limit of sun here, so you can see the uh, Capital there. Now, these plates have only got a couple of stars on them, so it may not have been possible for Dyson to have done it any better than perhaps the ones from SFAX. Maybe a bit better, because there are two or three other stars. But he could have used the eclipse plates from, say, the Royal Observatory Greenwich, or from Lick, or whatever at the time. Now, why didn't he? I don't know uh, to 100% accuracy, but I have my suspicions. Right? It's the best way of putting it. So the problem was um, World War I, Eddington was a conscientious objector. He said he would go to prison first before serving in the army, in the British Army. 1916, conscription had been introduced in, in the UK. Actually, it was also one of the contributing factors um, to, the, to the revolution in Ireland in 1916 was the fact that it looked like Britain was going to enforce conscription in Ireland. So by 1917, Eddington was in an awful lot of trouble in terms of um, defending himself from not going to the war. And um, Dyson and Eddington went to uh, Cambridge together. Um, in 1918, Eddington, it reached a stage where Eddington had to go in front of a military tribunal to explain why he was not serving in the army. He said what he had to do, and this was also it was the supporting letters from, uh, from Dyson, that he would have to go off and observe the eclipse to test Einstein's theory of relativity, and uh, that it was crucial that he go, and that there would not be another eclipse like this for a thousand years. <laughs> now, I have checked, and yes, he actually was right, apart from, I think, the, well, there was one which was just off the Falkland Islands in the 1930s where the Hyades were, were covered. Right? But that would have been at sea, so yes, we'll, we'll allow him that one. And in fact, yes, it's about a thousand years to the next one. Now, you have to believe he never looked back 
17 years, or it didn't cross Dyson's mind to look back 17 years. I just don't believe that, but you know, that's, it's open to interpretation, right? So, um, anyway, uh, Dyson insisted that Eddington would have to lead this expedition, even though he was a theorist, by the way. In his first year in Cambridge, if you read the stories about Eddington, he caused disaster in the first year labs. And they suggested he go off and do theory, which was a good idea, right? But then you have to ask yourself, well, why? Okay, so of course he had a clear interest in general relativity, but, you know, Andrew Comellan, who was an observer, was sent off for, uh, you know, to Sobral. Why didn't he pick somebody else from the geo? Right? Andrew Comellan, by the way, never put his name to the paper. I don't know why either. <laughs> so, anyway, Eddington went off to, to observe the eclipse. And, of course, the results were published. And as I said, the results favored Einstein's theory. So, despite the fact that Dyson had these three sets of plates, he picked the worst, really one of the worst ones of the three. Well, the other one was kind of cloudy, so not much you could do with that, right? And I still I have no idea why, apart from the fact that I, what I suggest was he realized from the 1900 eclipse plates and the, um, you know, the, the, the fact that he had made measurements on that, that the technique would work. And that may have also inspired him to realize about the 1919 eclipse in the whole sort of trying to sort out the problem with Eddington as well. So there was always a claim, by the way, by Chandrasekhar that the only reason why Eddington was, went to this eclipse was simply to avoid the war. And a lot of people thought, well, because there was a well-known dispute between Chandrasekhar and Eddington that maybe it was, there was a touch of sour grapes over all of this. But there may well have been something in that. So, okay, so it's just to summarize, uh, the actual equipment which had been used and proved crucial in the 1919 eclipse measurements has been found, has been restored. That's quite timely with next week being 100 years since uh, Einstein proposed his uh, general theory of relativity. Um, the, a quirk, by a quirk of just a fluke chance, it turns out that same equipment had been used to observe an identical eclipse uh, 19 years before that. And uh, it does look like Dyson, uh, the, I suppose the kind interpretation of this, Dyson probably realized that he would muddy the waters if he had talked about an identical eclipse which had occurred, uh, you know, 19 years beforehand. That it would not have served Eddington's case, certainly. Either that or he was extremely stupid, right? Um, so we've actually, I mean, we've had a look at some of these plates. The Landesteinwarte in Heidelberg now is gathering all these plates together from different parts of the world, and we're going to remeasure them. And actually, what our intention is that we make them available online for students of physics in 2016 to actually me measure the reflection of starlight for themselves with the 1900 plates and the 1919 plates. 
hopefully the ones in the RGO that are still surviving. Okay, so thank you very much.